So I need to ask you a question as I begin today. How many of you never struggle in the Christian life? Any hands? I don't know. I don't see any hands. If there was any hands that were raised, I would have told you to come up here and I would sit down there. <laughs> Struggles. You know, one of the ways we struggle in life today is when we look at what's going around us, what's going on around us, and we wonder, why doesn't God do something? Any of you struggle with that? <laughs> well, that's what we see in Psalm 73. And I've given the title of this message today, Confessions of a Struggling Believer. And we read then from Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said, I will thus speak, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children." When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Surely you've set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream. When one awakes, O oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You've taken hold of my hand. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works." Let's bow in prayer. Father, these are words that you have given by the inspiration of your Spirit. We pray that you would guide us into your truth, Lord. We believe that your word is everlasting truth. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Whenever I fly in an airplane, it's really quite amazing to see the difference in perspective from the air compared to being on the ground. When you're driving in a car, you have no idea what is over the hill, right? You've got no idea what is coming around the corner, but if you're up above the the ground in an airplane, you've got a pretty good view, don't you? A very good view of what's happening on the ground. One of the reasons why we struggle sometimes to understand especially the events of life that, that we just don't get is because our perspective is really quite limited. We don't see things as God sees them. And when you think about it, it really shouldn't surprise us, should it? If you don't have understanding like God does, that that shouldn't be surprising at all. Isaiah 55 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. And here's the picture. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So God has a perspective on the things of life that is so much broader, so much wiser than than we do. And that's what the psalmist finally discovered in this psalm. In the first part of Psalm 73, he was viewing things from a very limited human perspective and it was frustrating. It was discouraging. It was maddening. Looking at what was going on around him, he's saying, God, I don't get this. But then, God gave him some insight. As he went into the sanctuary, he met with the Lord that day, and God gave him some clear understanding. And so we're going to trace then the the process that this psalmist went through with, with three statements that kind of summarize the journey that he took from the beginning to the end of this song. Here's the first statement. God is good to His people, but it doesn't always appear that way. The psalm begins in kind of an interesting way. It actually begins by stating the psalmist's conclusion. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And that's the conclusion that he comes to at the end of the psalm, but it wasn't very easy for him to come to that place. Notice what he goes on to say. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, here's my testimony. Here's what I've gone through. He says, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost Slipped. This would describe a very significant uh, trouble in his life. As he was looking at what was going on around him, he said, I almost fell, I almost slipped. Not physically, but spiritually in his relationship with the Lord. And the thing that was troubling for the psalmist is that what he knew about God did not seem to fit what, what, what he observed in the world. What he knew about God just didn't seem to to fit with what he saw in the world because those who despised God seemed to be prospering. 
He says that in verse 3, I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And notice how he describes their prosperity. Verse 4, he says, there's no pains in their death. Their body is fat. Now, I'm assuming that's a good thing, right? That's, that's, that's a picture of, of their success, their prosperity. Their body is fat. Verse 5, they're not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. So he's watching, observing. He says, you know, the wicked... They don't seem to have any trouble. They got everything they want, everything they need. Everything seems to go just wonderful for them. And as a result, he says, they are filled with pride. Filled with a pride that exalts itself, a pride that oppresses others, and a pride that mocks God. Look at the description, verse 6. Therefore, pride is their necklace. (laughs) They're not ashamed of their pride. They wear it as an ornament. Pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high like they are so, so mighty. Verse 9, they... Yeah, verse 9, they have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Verse 11, they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge with the Most High? Does He realize? Does He know what's going on? Behold, these are the wicked. And He said, they're always at ease. So what He knows about God and what He sees in the world, He said, this just doesn't seem to mix, to match. The people he's describing here are people that are, what would we say, full of themselves. They think they can do whatever they want. They think they can say whatever they want. And they think they're going to get away with it. That they will continue to get away with it. You know any people who are like that? Does it ever make you wonder, why God do you allow this to go on? Just watch the news. And you'll see, you'll understand what the psalmist is observing because it appears as if some people, they're never held accountable. They can just do what they want. And there's no justice. And they prosper. Now, you might think that the psalmist would be disgusted with the wicked or maybe angry with the wicked, but that's not what he says. And to me, that's quite interesting. He is being brutally honest here when he tells us, look at verse 3, he tells us that the prosperity of the wicked made him envious. For I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What's he confessing? He's saying, I wish... My life was a little bit more like theirs. They're prosperous. (laughs) They don't have all these worries, all these concerns. He was envious of the wicked. It just didn't seem fair. Why are things so easy, he's saying, for those who despise God? 
This is what happens when we view the events of life from our limited, sinful perspective. We don't see things as God sees them, and it has a negative impact on our lives. I don't know if you've ever struggled with this, but there are times when you look at what's going on around the world, and it's just like, why don't you do something, God? Why don't you bring justice? Why are people oppressed by those who are wealthy and, and so forth? If you struggle in that way, you're not the only one. Because the psalmist did, and if you read the book of Job, he did too. He did as well. So there's the first statement. The second thing we see, God's people aim to live a godly life, but it doesn't always appear to help. The psalmist describes what his aim in life had been. In verse 13, he says, I've kept my heart pure, and I washed my hands in innocence. So what is he saying? Inwardly and outwardly, I've tried to live a godly life. In my heart and with my hands. In what I am like on the inside and how I live my life. This has been my desire and my aim. But notice what he says about this. He says it didn't appear to help. Because in verse 13, notice the phrase he used. He says, surely in vain. I've done this in vain. In vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. It seemed like it was all for naught. And he tells us why in verse 14. He says, for I have been stricken all day long. And I have been chastened every morning. So here's the wicked, they prosper, and there's, then there's me, I'm trying to live a godly life, and what do I get? I'm chastened. So here it becomes very personal for the psalmist. It's one thing to be bothered that the wicked are prospering, but for the psalmist it was worse. Not only were the wicked prospering, but he was stricken and chastened, trying to live a godly life, and yet he is what? Suffering. If you were here on Wednesday night for our Lenten service, Pastor Adam Ozier talked about that, about how as believers... We often suffer, and we are to follow the example of Jesus in suffering. And sometimes we, we, we ask the question, well, Lord, I'm trying to serve you. And this is what I get. I'm suffering as a result. Michael Wilcox says the point is sharpened for the psalmist when he himself begins to be plagued and punished. When the righteous receives what the wicked deserves. And then he says, if we are honest, we have to admit that for most of us, and get this, innocent suffering remains a purely academic problem until we become the suffering innocent in question. You get that? It's purely academic. It's purely theoretical when we see the, uh, the, the wicked prospering and the godly suffering. But when we are the ones who are suffering, then it becomes much more personal, doesn't it? It's not someone else. It's me. 
then it becomes a real challenge. So the psalmist isn't just observing the struggles and the lives of other believers. He is experiencing them himself. And that makes it tough, right? When you're the one who is suffering. What adds to that, this struggle that he's going through, is that he feels like he can't talk about what's going through his life. He feels like he, he, like he has to struggle alone. Because look at verse 15. He said, If I said, I will speak thus, I will talk about this, I will proclaim what I'm going through, Behold, he said, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Now, you need to understand that this psalm that he writes is like a diary. It's like his journal. This is not a psalm for the choir director, like we see a lot of the psalms to be sung in the sanctuary at the worship service. This is something that he is writing his own personal experience. And he says, you know, it's so frustrating, I don't even know if I dare share this. It's interesting to answer the question, who is the one writing this psalm? Who is this guy that is struggling, who doesn't know if he should even share it. If you notice the title, it's, it's Asaph. Do you know who Asaph was? Asaph was one of the Levites. He served as a musician and a worship leader in the sanctuary during David's reign. And I think what he's saying here is that in the position that I have... As a leader in the house of God, if I start sharing all the struggles I'm going through, what kind of an impact is that going to have on everyone else? That's kind of the struggle that seems to be what he's dealing with. One author says, Over against his grievance, however, is the awareness that to say publicly what he feels privately would be a terrible letdown for the fellowship of believers to which he belongs. Some might find it a real stumbling block if he reckons the game isn't worth the candle, we too might as well give up. So you see what he's, he's struggling with? He's, he's trying to handle this struggle alone, and it's obvious that it wasn't working well because he says in verse 16... When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome. It was troublesome in my sight. And so he's going through this struggle alone. And let me ask you, what happens when we go through struggles alone? That is not a good thing, is it? When we are facing the struggles of life alone, and I think there are many people who are doing that. Some are like Asaph. They feel they couldn't share what's going on in their lives. They might be a hindrance to others, and, and they don't want to do that. And then there are others who struggle alone because Christians aren't supposed to struggle. Now you know that's not true, but that's sometimes what people feel. 
What are people going to think of my relationship with the Lord if they know I have struggles? You see how Satan can get in there? So you better not share that. What are people going to think of you if you're a struggle? Especially if you're in a position like Asaph, who was a spiritual leader. There's a temptation for those in spiritual leadership to not be transparent. Because what will people think? If the worship leader, or if the pastor, or if the deacon, or the trustee is struggling. And so we just keep it all here. And think that eventually we can handle it. Maybe it's time to be honest, huh? Maybe it's time to be honest. Say, I'm struggling. Can you pray for me? Here's what I'm going through. Can you help me? Rather than just continuing to, to struggle alone, maybe it's time to just say, you know what, I, I, don't, I don't have it all together. And maybe it'll encourage others who recognize the very same thing. Could it be that this is what the psalmist really needed? He was struggling because he aimed to live a godly life, but it didn't seem to help. He said, I don't know if I can share that. If I do, what's going to happen? People realize that I'm not perfect, that I struggle. Well, finally, he comes to the point where we see then his third statement, God is good to his people, but we need to view these events from his perspective. That's where the psalmist needed to get to that point where he was viewing all that he was observing in the world from God's viewpoint. We don't know how long this struggle lasted, but we do know how his struggle was resolved. He says in verse 16, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until... What? He said, until... I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their end. The sanctuary of God. That was a special place to the psalmist because it was the place where the people of God gathered to worship, gathered to hear the Word of God, gathered to fellowship with other believers. And so in the sanctuary, the psalmist was able to get his eyes on the Lord. In the sanctuary, he was able to hear a message through the Scriptures. In the sanctuary, he was encouraged as he gathered with other believers. And if there was ever a time when he needed to be in the sanctuary, it was now. (laughs) It was that time. And I'll tell you what. There are too many people When they are struggling, they stay away from the house of God. They stay away from the fellowship. Remove themselves from the very thing they need the most. For whatever reason. The psalmist said, it wasn't until I gathered with the people of God. It wasn't until I came into the sanctuary that this really began to resolve in in my mind. 
And guess what? It may not have changed his circumstances. But it changed his perspective. And God doesn't always change our circumstances. That's the thing we want the most, right? God changed my circumstances. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes He doesn't. But He changes our perspective. He changes us. And that's what we see in this song. God is changing this man's heart as he struggles. There were two things that he learned in the sanctuary that day. He learned that God will deal with the pride of the wicked. God will deal with those that he's observing. Seems like they don't have any trouble. God will deal with them. Verse 18, Surely, surely, no question, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. And you know what's interesting? Prior to this, he said he was slipping, right? You go back to the uh, verse 2 of the psalm. He said, my feet had almost slipped. But he comes to understand that he's not the one slipping. It's the evil who will slip. God set them in slippery places. And they will be destroyed in a moment, utterly swept away by sudden terrors. God will deal with the wicked. He will deal with them in His time and in His way. Not in our time and our way, but in His time and in His way. H.C. Leupold gives some examples of this. How about Pharaoh's army? Suddenly, swept away. How about these three men, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? Remember when they were rebelling against Moses? In a moment, what happened? The earth opened up and swallowed them. They were swept away. And you could give many other examples of Saul and Absalom and Shimei and Sennacherib and Judas. In just a moment, God dealt with them and they were swept away. Surely, he says, God, you will deal with them. The wicked will not get away with their sin. There will, there will be a day of reckoning. For some of them, it will be in this life. For all of them, it will be when they stand before God one day. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, what? He will reap. And so as the psalmist looked at what was going on around him, he was frustrated, discouraged. But as he entered into the sanctuary of God, he came to understand that God will deal with the wicked. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. And so when we look at what's going on around us, we can just say, Lord, this is your business. I'm not going to get all bent out of shape about this. Even though it's frustrating, Lord, you'll deal with them when you decide to do so. And so that's the first thing that, that he learned. God has the final word. The second thing he learned that day is that God is truly good to his people. 
And look at how he explains God's goodness. It is wonderful. Verse 23, he says, Nevertheless, in spite of all this, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, you'll receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, can you say this? Besides you, God, I desire nothing on earth. Well, that's a testimony. My flesh and my heart, it might fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Notice the, the, the various ways that he describes the Lord. You have taken hold of my right hand. You're the one that holds me. And the word translated taken hold means to seize, to grasp, or to hold firmly. And notice that it wasn't the psalmist who is straining, trying to hold on to the hand of God. It is God who's holding on to His hand. And there's a big difference, isn't there? Like little children. When you're walking with a little child, what do you say to them? Do you say, let, do you say, hold my hand? You know what you should say? Let me hold your hand. Because if you're depending on that little child to hold on to your hand, you know how little those hands are and how big yours are? And if you're just going to go like that and, and think they're going to hold on when they trip, Oh, no. So don't say that. Don't say, hold my hand. Say, let me hold your hand. Because that's the biblical picture. God takes hold of our hand. He grasps it. And not only does He grasp our hand, He guides us with His hand, right? With your counsel, you will guide me. The psalmist is wise enough to know that his troubles aren't all behind him. Someone said the only one whose troubles are all behind him is the bus driver. A school bus driver. <laughs> so all of his troubles are behind him, but he's confident that God will be with him every step of the way. And no matter what happens, God will give him the strength that he needs until he takes him to glory. And that's what verse 24 says, With your counsel you will guide me, and afterward you'll receive me to glory. So God grasps our hand. He guides our path. He takes us to glory. What could be better than that? Money? Possessions? Come to the end of the road and you can't take it with you? Fame? You stand before God, are you going to tell Him, you know what, I was actually on the all-district basketball team, right? Or I played in the state tournament, you should know that too. That means nothing. But having the Lord holding your hand, having Him guiding you, having Him welcome you into glory, what could be better than that? I find it interesting to notice what it was about heaven that encouraged the psalmist. He could have mentioned the beauty of heaven, right? Or he could have mentioned the people that he'll meet there. 
Or the fact that the troubles of life will be over in heaven. But notice what it is that incurs him. It is the continuation of the relationship that he now has with God. Because notice what he says. Whom have I in heaven? But you. And besides you, I don't desire anything on earth. What does that say about this man? It says about him that what mattered to him the most was his relationship with God. His relationship with God. So what makes life good now and glorious later? It's the presence of God in your life. That's what it is. And we see that clearly then. The conclusion of the psalm, he he summarizes by contrasting the wicked and the godly. Verse 27, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You've destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. So there is one class of people, those who are far from God, those who have no relationship with Him, no desire to walk with Him. What's the result? They will perish. But then here's his testimony. It's interesting because remember in verse 2, he says, But as for me, I was slipping. Now he says, but as for me, what? Notice the change. But as for me, he said, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. So there's the bottom line for the psalmist. The nearness of God is my good. What do you need today more than anything? You need the Lord in your life. You need to be near Him. Fellowshipping with Him. Walking with Him. And that day, sanctuary, this man left pretty different than he came, didn't he? He came into the sanctuary troubled and discouraged and frustrated and envious of the wicked and saying, Look at my life, I'm chastened and suffering. And he walks out and says, you know what? God is good. God is good. He grasps my hand. He guides me through life. He receives me to glory. Could I say this? Good things can happen when you come to church. Good things can happen when you enter the sanctuary and fellowship with the people of God. That's what happened to the psalmist after he left that day. I'll tell you what, he was skipping on the way out of the temple that day. Rejoicing because God had met him. God had encouraged him. And he says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my God. Is that your testimony today? I hope it's not, but as for me, my feet are slipping. But as for me. The nearness of God is my good. And I'm going to tell others. (laughs) I'm going to share that. I'm going to make that known. That the nearness of God is my good. Let's pray. Father, may that be our testimony today. The nearness of God is my good. Thank you, God. You're the one who grasps us by the hand. You're the one that guides us throughout life. 
You're the one that will receive us into glory. Who do we have in heaven but you? And who do we desire on earth but you? Lord, I pray that our relationship with you would be that which is most important in our lives. And enable us, O God, to see things from your perspective. It doesn't mean necessarily our circumstances will change. But you are in the process of changing us. Help us then to see things from your vantage point instead of our own limited human vantage point. These things we pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.